Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are finishing up our discussion on opioid use disorder. According to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, used to be, formerly was, that uh, opioid use disorder was called opioid abuse uh, as well as opioid dependence. That was changed. We've discussed this in a previous or prior podcast. That was changed mostly because it seemed to best represent the notion of a continuum when you uh, describe it in terms of use rather than as being two separate entities, abuse and dependence, uh, albeit very functional and throughout the course of uh, the podcast discussing opioid use disorder, I have not had any difficulty uh, accepting that you could interchange uh, the former language or terminology of abuse and dependence for the present, which would be use measured mild, moderate, or severe. Uh, and I guess with that too, it seems to go without saying that if you're going to use an illicit substance, it's already abuse. <laughs> and it's already then holding great potential for dependence. So uh, why do we need to even recognize or acknowledge separately that idea of abuse? Except, accepting that in a mild context, maybe even in a moderate context, there may be better abilities to step away or it has yet to proven itself to be such the chronic course as would go along with that disease model that would then otherwise result in physiological dependence, but also, more psychologically speaking, uh, one's addictive personality, although that's not itself recognized in the, by the American Psychiatric Association in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There is no such thing as an addictive personality, but it seems to capture, again, that notion that there are some individuals that are more prone to, and if you happen to be one of them, even if you've uh, made a mistake or two, which be, would be comparable to one who isn't prone to uh, the disease process, uh, becoming an addict. Uh, for you, if you have that dimension, it's going to turn out that way. You just may not know it because it might still be too soon, early on in the course. And uh, with that, there's a, it looks very similar to just abuse. But some individuals are able to uh, walk away from illicit substance use, uh, and with that, only in some sort of a lesser manner, abuse it as opposed to becoming dependent upon it. Hope that helped clear that up a bit. So we've discussed everything from making a good diagnosis through to the American Society of Addiction Medicines levels and dimensions of care so we can formulate a good treatment plan. And along the way, we've spoken of, in more generic or general terms, uh, what it is like to have an illicit substance use disorder, uh, even if we've used opioid uh, or opiates as uh, the subject. Uh, the patterns are the same. So what we will do, as we're kind of moving to hopefully we'll get to, in today's podcast, uh, a different illicit substance, 
but as we move there, I think a couple things probably, again, need to be summarized about opioid use, uh, mild, moderate, and severe, but also as that then the idea, that being the idea of abuse, dependence, and illicit substance use disorder generalizing to any possible substance that holds similar potential, uh, holds similar physiological and psychological dynamics. The potential would be, again, that it might turn to moderate and severe, or as we used to call it, describe it, might uh, actually become uh, a matter of dependence which includes physiological and psychological dependence. Those concepts haven't been removed. Again, the perspective's changed a bit. The paradigm has changed a bit. Uh, We want to capture it more in terms of a continuum rather than once more uh, or once again two separate uh, disorders or two parts of a singular disorder but distinctly different. Again, hopefully that makes sense. But based on... Then this generalizing or this ability to generalize uh, those criterion uh, that we use, the American Psychiatric Association has given us to use to make a diagnosis of an illicit substance problem or difficulty use problem. Uh, We can say then that they're very identical or very much the same or identical to uh, what we've discussed so far as pertaining to opiates. Uh, For instance, we're going to take a look at uh, cocaine because, as another reminder, as we started this series of podcasts, uh, cocaine was the second most addicted substance at that particular time on record in the United States. Uh, And with that, in 2017, we had said or have said previously that a national survey estimated somewhere around 19.7 million adults that would be age 12 years or older have some sort of addictive a problem with an illicit substance that would, would fall into that category of addictions. Uh, and 74%, as much as we've talked about drugs and illicit substances, uh, alcohol is included Uh, But it's not illicit in the sense that it's legal. But just because something has been legalized does not necessarily mean that it is either good for you or is somehow uh, not going to have the same sort of aspects of addiction uh, applicable to them. Uh, Alcohol is, again, in somewhat of a throwback manner, considered differently by many individuals, some of which are treatment providers, as a completely different disease. Uh, I would be one of those individuals, though, that would see the common dimensions probably put substances and alcohol or substances as drugs, illicit drugs, alcohol is a substance, but alcohol in the same category. I'd also probably be inclined to believe that the more research that is done, the more we are going to determine that there are addictive aspects to personality. And in a generic sort of way, uh, anyone that has those characteristics, as we would identify them, 
as they would be valid, and we could see them reliably so in uh, uh, repeated sort of studies on such subject or such matters. We're going to determine that though the predisposition is somewhat unique, either toward a substance like alcohol or toward drugs, in a generic or general sort of way, addiction is addiction. The course is pretty much the same. Again, the diagnostic criterion look almost identical. It's just that the drug of choice or the substance of choice changes. And uh, so to speak, with alcohol, alcohol is somewhat of a category unto itself, but there are other substances that achieve the same end as alcohol. Uh, we call them uh, anxiolytics, uh, which would be also in the category of sedative hypnotics. But they have, and those are drugs, those would be of the Xanax and the Valium and even so, more in the past, the Librium, uh, Clonopin, Ativan, uh, alcohol, and the anxiolytics, sedative hypnotics, function pretty much in the same way when it comes to altering one's physiology. Uh, what I mean by that is achieving a certain result, changing the physiology to get a certain outcome. Uh, and with that, they're more along the lines of suppression or depression, uh, lowering uh, excitability in the system rather than increasing it. Uh, again, in prior podcasts, worthy of going back and reminding uh, ourselves of, however, when it comes to physiology, there is basically a dichotomization of effect. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't be more, again, in this idea of a continuum, somewhere toward the middle, but most substances will either fall on the excitability side of that continuum or the suppression. I used the word depression earlier uh, in today's uh, discussion a few moments ago, but the uh, then suppression of excitability. Uh, that likely corresponds with the primary dimensions of bodily operations as they would fall into category of the sympathetic nervous system, which seems to be more so about excitability versus the parasympathetic nervous system, which seems to be more about suppression of excitability, uh, stimulation, uh, energy. <laughs> and why is that? Because basically speaking, uh, the two operational systems do coexist. They're designed to work together, but adaptively so. When one is on, for the most part, the other is shut down or turned off, or as with that word, suppressed. Sympathetic nervous system is more about immediate energy, survival, uh, finding whatever energy or resource in a physical sort of dimension or way would be necessary to address what seems to be either greatly or maybe even lesser in a marginal sort of way, a threat, it kicks in. Uh, the basic neurotransmitters of norepinephrine and adrenaline drive that. In the same sort of a way, though, drugs 
kind of fall into a similar dichotomization. And I've not necessarily reviewed so much the parasympathetic at this moment. I will here in a couple of minutes, moments, uh, a few minutes. But for now, there are many substances that would then affect the operations of the parasympathetic, uh, the sympathetic nervous system for the sake of excitement, stimulation, excitability. Uh, and with that then, if the person, for whatever reason, we call it the homeostatic response, but their so-called, possibly called thermostat, bodily thermostat, is not working properly so as to maintain the ideal temperature, as with a thermostat or set point, then an individual may have some sort of predisposition, naturally speaking, to want to do things, including use a substance that will compensate to try to balance that out in some manner or way. And there's many manners and ways to do that. One of the easiest, though, is to take an illicit substance or use an illicit substance, taking illicit drugs, a drug, or use an illicit substance. If you should lean toward the suppression side, not enough energy, not enough excitability, where there is a lack of then the turning on, <laughs> which might be, again, more akin to the sympathetic and more, again, predominantly so the suppression or turning off, which would be this parasympathetic, you, a stimulant might be something that makes you sort of feel balanced. And it's not only measured in terms of feelings, although feelings are primary in the sense that most of what we know to be good or bad starts with a feeling, either good or bad, depending on how you measure that. And that can get somewhat complicated the more you add to that, the more factors that play into that. It's a very uh, overly simplified presentation uh, that we're making today. But I believe it's solid enough to give you a good perspective itself uh, a, a working model, a paradigm for understanding that really is in what we sometimes call self-medicating. A person will take a substance to balance out what otherwise is some naturally occurring predisposition to imbalance. Now, on the parasympathetic side, with that suppression of excitability, you would find then neurotransmitters such as serotonin, dopamine, GABA, which is again a Latin term, uh, much too complicated for me to be able to say or pronounce correctly. So I am going to use the same acronym most everyone uses, which is GABA, short for short. Uh, there is also oxytocin uh, that goes along with the parasympathetic. Uh, and I believe I've mentioned dopamine, but if not, dopamine that also goes along with that as well. All of those neurotransmitters, though certainly serotonin has a bit of an energizing effect, but most of those 
are leaning toward the turning off of the sympathetic or the norepinephrine and adrenaline. Most of those neurotransmitters then in a physiological, biochemical way are going to slow one's level of activity, excitability, stimulation somewhat down so that you get more of a restorative sort of function from that. If the sympathetic does anything in the way of preservation, it is an immediate jolt. I need to do something now because the threat is imminent, and if I don't either escape or defeat whatever the threat is, it's going to kill me. And there really isn't much thought that goes into that, the way that norepinephrine and adrenaline and that system works. It is more reactive. Uh, I'm going to use the term autonomic in the sense of automatic, which doesn't mean the parasympathetic doesn't have the similar dimensions, but it doesn't have to be processed through the brain in any sort of significant calculated way. It's better if it is because not everything obviously is going to result in death or holds that potential, but you don't know that. And sometimes you don't have time sufficient to think it through and you just have to react. The sympathetic is an immediate get us out of this situation so that we can think about it sort of operational system, which as you might garner or gather, is quite adaptive. However, to stay in that state of alert, <laughs> hypervigilance is another word that we use in the industry, excitability will eventually wear your body out uh, for a number of reasons, one of which we are really confident, uh, have identified clearly, most clearly, that's detrimental uh, and harmful to the body, when too much norepinephrine and adrenaline, norepinephrine and adrenaline remains in your system for too long, cortisol is released. And cortisol, in whatever manner or way, as a byproduct of that elevated biochemical level of norepinephrine and adrenaline, actually is harmful to your body and not just a particular part of your body but the entirety of your body overall. On the parasympathetic side, though, turning that off then, again, the idea of somewhat of a mutually exclusive system, operational system, dichotomization, these two primary parts, helps. Otherwise, too much excitability will wear the body out. Too much cortisol promotes disease and disorder. Besides that, in a more natural sort of way, in a proper balanced or equalized sort of system where the thermostat is working properly, the homeostatic response is working correctly, the parasympathetic kicks in automatically. Again, sort of like the sympathetic, doesn't require much thought, but it's not toward the jolt, it's not toward the imminent, I have to react, it allows with time some certainly better physiological recovery or bodily operations that are essential to recovery or restoration, uh, building back up, 
what day-to-day living even in a more normal sort of way tends to uh, require of us in the way of resources and nutrition and repair of the body from the daily, so to speak, grind. But the parasympathetic nervous system with all the neurotransmitters I mentioned earlier, when they kick in, the primary drives are best met. Sleeping, again, restoration, uh, procreation, all of those things that seem to be most adaptive, again, as measured by facilitation of not only more life quantitative, but hopefully more life qualitative, is allowed to take, again, precedence or, as I used the word predominate earlier, predominance. And that is a good thing. It allows us contentment satisfaction, some sense of peace. It also ties into the immunological system, which is the body's real defense against disease, attack, so to speak, at that physiological level. The autoimmune system, which otherwise is in that same sort of a way, self-preservation, or the body's best mechanism of self-preservation. Uh, so that you live as long and live as long, as healthy as possible. Now, I'm still talking physiology here. But when you then begin to introduce or go back to that good feeling and bad feeling, you can start to move it from more physiological to what we have identified as psychological operations. And with that, The feeling good can be quite desirable. It's desirable in the sense that it is tied to things that are good for us, but it's also desirable in the sense of emotional regulation. You don't want to be too excited or you're going to have anxiety and or anger, as an example. That might then incline us to believe or lead us to believe you're inclined more toward norepinephrine and adrenaline product of the sympathetic nervous system, which is otherwise predominant. However, on the other side, again, binary, dichotomous, on the other side, dichotomy, on the other side would then be an emotional, more psychological aspect or presentation would be the potential for depression, which is not just, as I used depression earlier, synonym with suppression. Depression would then be diagnosably so, where the body more often, more repeatedly so, more regularly so, Unfortunately, what has become even as abnormal now definitive or defines the normal for the individual that is depressing, depression, a lack of energy, sleep disruption, difficulties in appetite, lack of libido or sexual drive as directed toward procreation, all of that then is integrated. It seems, again, somewhat separate, physiological and psychological functioning, 
but you can't separate psychological functioning from physical functioning. Otherwise, there would be no body. And anything and everything that we might conceive of in more psychological terms has a physiological basis. So once you begin to alter the physiology, the homeostatic response, what are the hedonic system, I should introduce that word or reintroduce that word, which is, again, this pleasure-pain sort of dynamic, feeling good, feeling bad, as a reinforcer to either more or less of certain behaviors, as well as, in psychological terms, thoughts that accompany those behaviors. But when you start to disrupt that at such a base physiological level, you're going to have, then, an emotional outcome, a result that will fall in line with the physiology as we've defined it, sympathetic and parasympathetic, most individuals will fall into the category of too much excitement and all then the subsequent problems that go along with that. And for more general, again, presentation, generalized presentation, that would be anxiety. On the other side of that, though, would be the possibility of depression. Now, interestingly enough, anxiety and depression can also lie on the same continuum, though I am presenting it as if it is two separate entities, dichotomously binary, we know it's not. But what we do know is that even as the norepinephrine and adrenaline has then directed or driven one to such sustained levels of excitability that they've, in effect, physically worn out their body. <laughs> Cortisol, unfortunately, has created ancillary or secondary sort of difficulties, attacking the body, destroying the body from within bodily functions. Eventually, even as a result of that, and maybe that's how all depression really gets started, as a result of that, then you are going to find your body in malfunction, not able to have, again, anything close to or near normal. Balance, equilibrium. It's going to be one-sided. It's sort of like when you take a drug or substance and with that you crash afterwards or you go through physiologically withdrawal. That's more chronic and long-term as we're talking about anxiety and depression. As with the disease model, the model of infirmity, as even with, again, predisposition, we could have said genetic uh, predetermination or genetic predisposition, something that is genetically encoded Eventually, at some point, the person will hit the other side. And in getting to that other side, if it goes far enough, if it progresses the disease, it's global. So it is very difficult to always, once more, separate all of these things we talk about as being separate and individualized, unique from the overall more generalized pattern of 
a little bit of abuse is probably not going to result in the same thing that we see when it is protracted, goes on for an extended period of time, and with that, the disease model unfolds the progression into disease, not health, into disease continues to such an extent that the effects are globalized. Now, maybe it's all symptomatic of the substance misuse. Maybe it is not so much only causative in that way. But maybe it is, again, just the disease model on a physiological level, which the substance misuse then does nothing but potentiate, add to, exacerbate, make worse. Now, I know that all may sound kind of confusing, but imagine making a good diagnosis. It has to be relatively simple to be useful. Keep it simple. But at the same time, though, when we look to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we're only seeing it in somewhat of a superficial or overly simplified presentation. Again, much like my presentation on the podcast today has been in many ways, though it seems complex, rather overly simplified. But we talk about these things, whether it's the diagnostic criterion that goes into illicit substance use or any other concurrent or co-occurring or even standalone behavioral health diagnosis or condition, which itself, depression, again, is a disease. It's looked at within that medical model as having a disease process attached to it or a progression that is similar to the disease model. And it's useful, but the utility starts to become somewhat compromised when we begin to realize multifactorial and layered. And sometimes, even as much, we're looking from the outside in, it might look even more complex. But why I said earlier in the podcast, my preference is to try to make it or keep it as simple as possible, lest I get lost in the so-called weeds of all that. Too much to see, too much to factor in, and really no abilities to do either, to truly measure it or really understand the complexity of the dynamics of interaction of all the psychosocial and physiological factors. When you think of it that way, the human body and the homeostatic response is pretty impressive in that any moment, it's sort of like a computer or an operational system on a computer. It integrates and allows there to be functionality when there's so many multiple levels of processing and processes that are going on at any one time. That is amazing. What is also amazing is the moment you introduce something alien or foreign, such as a substance, the body immediately begins to compensate. That is, once again, what results in withdrawal, physiological withdrawal. But it's also what we used to, as we would used to or formerly, 
speak of dependence, physiological dependence, when it comes to illicit substances, the body has made an adjustment so that it maintains, again, its set point, its thermostat. But it can only do that for so long. And unfortunately, when you add the psychological dimension of a person who is either wanting to self-medicate or in some manner or way desiring to turn off, another word I could use would be to escape, even if it's just measured psychosocially, environmentally, things that are threatening so they get some rest, so they don't have to feel so bad, or as maybe they've not done a very good job of cooperating with the homeostatic response. They've not learned the language of their body as translated to human thought, what the body is trying to tell them, intuitively so. They then represent a very powerful, self-destructive sort of impulse or dimension. And for those of you who have been with me throughout this series of podcasts on opioid use disorder, you know that I have mentioned on several occasions self-destruction. Because somewhere along the way, somebody, such as myself, (laughs) begins to make you aware, attempts to point out outside of you, beyond defense mechanisms, beyond denial, beyond otherwise compromised psychological operations, compromised either by trauma, uh, persistent trauma, one-time traumas, acute stress, post-traumatic stress, comorbid conditions like depression and anxiety, You get the picture. I'm trying to make it simple so that you can begin to see it in at least elemental terms so that you can then begin to get the help you need. Psychological assessment is important. The American Psychiatric Association has done a fantastic job of bridging the gap between the medical model and what traditionally was or what quickly, initially psychology and psychiatry were married, as with Freud. But when psychology started to branch off of or away from the medical model somewhat, or as with other ways of looking at our psychological sort of condition or our personality, psychological operations, our personality, how we cope with life, the enduring traits, characteristics, the virtues that that describe and define us, whether it's, again, from psychological, possibly even more religious sort of perspectives, what's happened, unfortunately, is otherwise a disservice because now we have to reconnect them in some way. And because the same individual doesn't do both parts of that, that runs then some risk of a breakdown in communication, coordination of care, integration of services. The industry is recognizing that, 
the entirety, medical and psychological, and is working toward integrative sort of paradigms. So me presenting this to you, I want to make sure that either as the addict or someone, again, who knows the addict, who cares about that person, who's in a position of assistance, maybe you're one of the providers, medical or psychological. We just want to remind everyone we need to see it from both sides. And in that, as we pull those resources, or pool is the best way to, I think, say that, the right word to use to say that, those resources, and we allow there to be that integrative element in terms of treatment, care, or even in our own self-care, what we begin to see is we find our way back to this homeostatic response. We should. <laughs> that would be my encouragement. It is somewhat intuitive, but if we can learn more about how our body functions, what we do to it when we don't take into consideration all the aspects and the factors, also how when we begin to allow the systems to naturally adjust, they are the systems that make up our body. All the multiple, again, processes that I mentioned earlier were miraculously amazing, hard to fathom, even to believe it's possible. For the most part, your body knows how to heal itself if you cooperate. That includes the psychology, and for me, who is a religious person, though I would not want to necessarily corrupt anybody else's thoughts about this, that's a personal preference on my part, I don't have a problem integrating that within a spiritual context. And what does that do? It allows me to connect not only my body well together internally, but in that same sort of a way, I find myself better able to connect with everything else that's going on outside of me. That includes other persons as well as other things, <laughs> people not included animals, nature, more cosmic, whatever it is, I connect better with that as well. And with that, that's holistic, right? I only say right because I want to emphasize it. It is holistic. That's the best approach to take because you can always come back to it. And the parts can be parsed out looked at individually, independently, but there's always an effort once you unpack them, partition them. You need an integrative system, an operational system, going back to the computer analogy again, to pull it all together. But the homeostatic response, the hedonic system, it does that already for you. If you can find that way of understanding the language and the communication in the manner I'm attempting to describe it today on the podcast, let it do its job. It will do a better job than you could ever conceptualize with human intellect. You'll never be able to see it all, measure it all, 
know it all. Know what other external factors, as I was trying to capture them a moment ago, my connections and spiritual ways with the world around me. You'll never know what's going to happen next because that's the whole point. We live in a very dynamic, creative-oriented, material, physical dimension. You can't predict everything, nor should you, nor should you want to. But relax a bit, which, by the way, will turn off the parasympathetic, allow you to find some rest along the way, uh, the sympathetic, I mean, allow you to find some rest along the way in the parasympathetic. The norepinephrine and adrenaline will be able to be turned off while the neurotransmitters, the serotonin, the dopamine et al. on the parasympathetic kick in. Much better if you have some confidence that your brain, your conscious awareness, does not have to manage it all. Now, what I have just described is what many in the addictions field, again, professional and less professional sort of dimensions of care, uh, intervention, as well as those who have had addictions, illicit substance use, as well as those who haven't, they know this, though, by proxy of working with the addicts, those that have. What we've just described is what most people in a colloquial way call the higher power. It is a higher power principle. But it has very pragmatic, realistic roots, just like the psychology does not appear to be so dependent upon the physiology as even unto a life of its own, seeing it as something completely different and separate, which we once more mentioned earlier, seems to have a power unto its own, but it doesn't. It's attached to the physical. In the same sort of a way, however, everything has that same sort of honing <laughs> device a higher power that brings all things together. And with that, in that same homeostatic sort of way, we call it entropy, tends to want to balance it all out. And as much as inertia could be contentment in that regard, as we look at the physical laws of the universe of material existence and kind of then, kind of then draw more spiritual or psychological parallels, if it's physically based, then those things will follow unless you make a choice to not listen to the higher power. <laughs> and the higher power is not physically based in me or you as an individual. It is somehow physically, in a material way, a reality. For all things, everything that lives. And I almost feel sort of embarrassed to even describe it that way or inadequate. It's embarrassing to feel inadequate to describe it that way because there is no way I can measure anything outside of my human ability to measure it. I'm bound by my humanism, but I don't doubt that as I say this, my listeners, you, who are listening right now, can't disagree or argue the point 
that that's true because what's happening in another universe? What's happening at the core of the earth? I have no idea. No way of measuring it unless I can send something there to measure it. But I can't send something into infinity because it's not boundless. There's no end to it. I know I'm extending it a bit far. But when you get into that and it starts to overwhelm your ability to conceptualize, that is threatening. When you think you can't control it, that is threatening. And lest we move too far away from the subject matter, that's exactly what happens with addictions. Try to speak to an addict about managing everything and controlling everything after the fact that either before or during or following their onset and then the progression of this disease and disorder, we call illicit substance use, plug in whatever substance, they have seemed to mute, to lose the sound of, to recognize in any sort of sensory way that internal voice. They are not connected within themselves to themselves, more so the world around them. The only way to do that for them is to make it simple. Rather than trying to self-regulate, creating the ups, the excitement, or compensating by adding to that then through some artificial means a down to balance it all out, you're going to fail. You can't win. It's not possible. So what we do, though, is we realize the more generalities of it all. And what I'm speaking to in particular at this moment in the conversation today is that people will use pretty much one of two categories of substances. And most of the illicit substances are going to fall into one or the other. They're either going to excite, as with facilitating some dimension of the sympathetic nervous system, or they're going to neutralize or suppress excitability for the sake of rest and relaxation and restoration on the parasympathetic side. But anytime you turn a human mind loose and not have any confidence that they have either attained developmentally, emotional regulation, psychological regulation, spiritual development and op operations of their body in the, the most adaptive way, turn them loose, they're going to get lost, if not already, are immediately feel overwhelmed, as in lost, to the point that they're just going to run to whatever it is that takes all that confusion away. And in, again, an overly simplified manner, that's what an addiction is, or at least and I think that's all addictions. I was going to say at least for the, again, cause of our discussion, an illicit substance misuse, mild, moderate, or severe. But anything that one does 
behaviorally thinks of, seeks, desires, engages in, that changes your body chemistry, which is everything, has an impact on your body chemistry, runs the risk then of being an addiction because it can throw the entire system off. One of the worst things that I typically or commonly hear, this is anecdotal, with addicts is that somehow they're different from everyone else and their only problem is that particular addiction. Wrong. In some ways, we're all addicts and we're all addicted and we have to get to a place or point where we recognize why we are is because somehow along the way, probably in our immaturity, probably as we're growing up, maybe through some sort of psychosocial sort of culturalization or acculturalization, socialization process, we've not had the operational systems complete yet before we develop the paradigm. And what is the paradigm? I've got to control it all because if I don't, it's going to kill me. Well, Good luck, because in the end, you're still going to die. And it's not about whether it's going to kill you or not kill you in that way. I'm all about living, again, a long and healthy life. Your body is well-developed, created to be able to do that. But it's everyone's problem. And that's why everyone's answer tends to move back toward some notion of a higher power outside of themselves. Now, that's not to say some individuals do not have great capacity at controlling the world around them and can get quite a bit of traction and can join together with a bunch of other individuals who think the same way and exert the same sort of control and in some ways can manipulate, dominate, whatever the word would be, a good bit of people along the way. However, in the end, there's no answer to death. And if life truly is measured as with adaptability, as the greatest measure of life, then you've got no answer except that you would understand and then allow your human body in your human form, the mechanism, the power that is bigger and broader and knows and is connected to something in such a universal way as to be able to take all of the factors, infinitely so, that would would apply all the multiple processes at any one particular moment that might be going on in any part of existence, infinitely so, wherever that may be, to be able to order it rightly for you. If you don't, that will drive you to addiction. And it won't work. And eventually, even that control overcompensation, too much control will be the end of you. Because in the end, even if you've been successful, you still end up dying. 
and hoping there's something more to life than just that. And besides, there's a lot of work, (laughs) energy that goes into that. Maslow's hierarchy, self-actualization is not controlling everything. Self-actualization is adapting, finding life, and not killing yourself. A little bit of a philosophical, but I think it's sound theoretical. It is a paradigm, and I think it does capture a good bit of what we still abide by, hold to be true when it comes to addictions and the treatment of addictions, and in particular, again, for the cause of our program or podcast today, illicit substance use. So what I want to do then is, with the next podcast, move from opiates and opioid use into, again, the category of stimulants. And uh, cocaine being then that second on the list of most addicted substances, based on those uh, statistics I gave at the beginning of today's podcast. What many don't realize, though, is there's other stimulants. And probably at this particular moment in our history, human history, none more prominent than amphetamines and methamphetamines and how they do otherwise interact with substances such as the opiates, or we've started all this series out calling them heroin, or at least identifying heroin as the most addicted substance, but that's an opiate. But as we've spoken about them over all of these podcasts, opiates, that that is, uh, what we find is, though, the methamphetamine Amphetamine becomes then, in some sort of alliance, co-current, concurrent, the foil, the way to balance it all out. So that's another reason why I wanted to get into cocaine. But I want to add methamphetamine. And as I've said uh, to last podcast and in a prior podcast, previous podcasts, Uh, Eventually, we're going to chase down marijuana and cannabis, which I'm sure is going to be a very interesting discussion uh, for all sorts of reasons. Again, I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast, Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. The email address is posted. Reach out to me. I'll be glad to answer any questions that I can, be of any assistance I can, uh, and would like to make sure I take this opportunity to invite you back to our next podcast. Uh, where we will continue to discuss uh, illicit substance use and, again, expand that discussion into uh, other substances and other areas. But in the meantime, I hope that uh, if you need help, that you seek it out, that you get it. Again, thanks very much for joining us today.